traveled all the way from Kitchener. Uh, he will probably, well, I'll get him to explain a little bit more about his family and what, why he got into this. But we, just so you know how tonight is going to run, some of you have questions and that you were asking at the book table. There is order to this, Janet, so we're just going to explain so everybody has fair game. What we're going to do, uh, we're going to have Richard, he's going to share uh, uh, the, the session, the first session. He's going to do all the talking through that point, so that's going to be for the first uh, hour. After that, we're going to have a quick break where you can grab some coffee to recharge, stretch your legs a little, check on your kids, and uh, you can check out the book table as well, uh, purchase anything there that you uh, may find interesting. After that, we're going to invite whoever would like to to come back in, and we're going to have just an open uh, question and answer session with Richard, and so all of your questions, well, well, they'll have a chance to be asked. Hopefully, we'll find some answers to those as well. Good. Well, we are glad to have you with us. I'm really glad to have Richard with us. Would you please give him a warm welcome as he... All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. This is just amazing for a Wednesday night to have, have everyone come out. That's, uh, that's not usual. Uh, last weekend, I was in uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta. We had a good time out there too, but um, I'm one of seven speakers that travels across the country on behalf of uh, Creation Ministries International. If you've never heard of the ministry, I mean, it's, it's, it's really nice. We, we start these things off, and people say a lot of nice things about me and so on. But please understand, I'm, I'm only the visible part of a very large international team of, of scientists and researchers. There's, there's seven offices, seven CMI offices around the world. We really are an international ministry. Uh, the Canadian office started as a room in my home in late 98. Uh, so next year is going to be our 20th anniversary. We've got seven speakers in Canada. I'm not the only one. And what we do as a ministry, we're, we're just kind of uh, introduce the ministry a little bit. If you've never heard of CMI, we are an information ministry. There's a lot of great Christian groups all around the world that do wonderful work. There's, uh, there's, there's Bible teaching ministries, there's humanitarian aid ministries, there's, there's the shoebox ministry, the Samaritan's Purse, and there's, there's all kinds of great ministries that do wonderful work. We are an information ministry. That's our, the way we see our role in the body of Christ to bring faith-building information into the church in an area of Scripture where many Christians struggle in their faith. And that's Genesis 1 to 11. Those first 11 chapters of the Bible, you've got um, you know, creation, the fall into sin, the flood of Noah, the Tower of Babel, and then Genesis 12, you get to Abraham, and it gets pretty normal after that. But, but Genesis 1 to 11, a lot of people have questions in that area, and that's, that's, the folk, that's the subject focus of our ministry. And one of the things that makes us a little bit different than your average Christian group is, as far as we know of all the Christian ministries around the world, we employ the most PhD scientists. Makes us a little bit different than your average Christian group. I'm not a scientist, in case you're wondering. I was, um, I was born in Kitchener, Ontario. Uh, there's a picture of my family. I've got five kids. I went, my background's electronics. I went to Conestoga College there in Kitchener. They had a wonderful electronics program, as it turned out. Worked in that very happily for over a decade before coming on board with the ministry. But I work with scientists. And the reason we have the scientists on board is to do the research and do the, do the heavy lifting, in a sense, for us to get answers to questions about Genesis that often do involve some science, some science and theology and so on. Now, here's a picture of our staff. We've got 14 just in, just in Canada um, uh, 11 of them work out of the office there in Kitchener. And um, to get this information out, we have speaking events happening all across the country and, and that kind of thing. We've got a website. Our website looks something like this. There's over 11,000 articles on that website. Not 1,100, 11,000. 
That's even 1,100 would be big, right? And it's growing all the time. There's a new article on the front page six times a week, constantly new information. There's a search window. If you have a question, you, there's a search window up here. Type in whatever question you might have. You know, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? Or, and and where did the water come from for the flood? And, and uh, what about cavemen? What about ape men? What about radioisotope dating? Um, how come we're seeing light from galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years away if God didn't create that long ago? And where did Cain get his wife if he wasn't able? And, uh, and other questions like that. And you might have some questions like that. That's a great place to go to get answers to those kinds of questions and send your kids and grandkids there. If they're struggling in their faith and they want to know that the Bible is true, that's, have, them, have them run around the website for a few hours. It's a great place to go. The, um, the website name, I apologize, is really long and hard to remember, so I thought maybe we could say this all together. It's, it's creation.com. Ready? Creation.com. Okay, well, it's not long and hard to remember. It's the easiest web address that you could think of if you're looking for information on creation on, uh, on what they used to call the information superhighway. Now, another tool that we have to get information out into the church, so we've got, we got speakers going on tours all across the country and conferences, that kind of thing. Um, we've, we've got a website. We also have an email news. And like, like every other organization under the sun, we have an email news. And what we try to do in our email news is we try to give you the Christian perspective on the latest scientific discoveries. Because you all know that whenever there's some new scientific discovery, it's always delivered to us with a nice little evolutionary packaging, right? Here's how this fits with evolution. It has nothing to do with God or the Bible or anything like that. It's evolution in millions of years. Here's an example of one that went out a little while ago. It involved the discovery of a hadrosaur dinosaur. You can see an artist's reconstruction there of what that animal looks like. It wasn't the first one that was found. This was another specimen that was found. That picture behind it there, that's taken through a microscope. That's some soft and stretchy tissue that they were pulling out of its unfossilized bones. An evolutionist dated that animal to have died 80 million years ago. We thought that was interesting. Maybe you think that's interesting too. How can it be 80 million years old if there's still soft tissue in the bones, right? doesn't make any sense. If that sounds interesting, if you want to sign up for that, there's some sign-up sheets that look like this. And if we could start those around at this point, that would be great. Um, you know what to do. Put your name and email address on there, and I'll make sure you get on that list. It's a simple, free little thing that you can do to, to get some of this information into your home. And uh, then obviously you can share it with your kids and grandkids, that kind of thing. I'm not going to pause for that. You can, you can circulate those among yourselves, and we'll get on with our topic here this evening. So as was already mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll, this, this first session here is going to be an overview of the creation-evolution issue. Nothing you know, very technical or anything like that, just an overview. And then we'll have, and, and hopefully, in an hour from now, you'll have some tools to maybe answer some questions that you have about the creation-evolution issue on your own. We'll, we'll give you some of those basics. But if not, then stick around for the question time afterwards. Let's start with this. It's a great time to be a Christian. Yes. It, hey, there we go. <laughs> One of our speakers was at a church recently, and he, and he said, is this an amen church? And there's a lady sitting right in the front row that said, no. Said, oh, <laughs> okay. Moving right along. But uh, it, it, it is a great time to be a Christian. Some of you might be saying, what, are you nuts? It's a terrible time to be a Christian. We have, we have, and I understand that perspective, right? We have laws in Canada going against what we would, what we would understand to be biblical values and other things going downhill regarding Christianity and, and that kind of thing. But nevertheless, it is a great time to be a Christian. One, it's always been a great time to be a Christian. 
one of the reasons it's a great time to be a Christian today is there's a massive amount of support for our faith. Our faith as Christians is not a blind faith. We don't need to turn a blind eye to logic and science and reason and things like that. It's reasonable to be a Christian. It makes sense to be a Christian. It's logical to be a Christian. It's good to be a Christian. And there's support that we have today for what the biblical text says that our parents and grandparents never had. And I'll share some of that with you tonight. That's why I'm saying it's a great time to be a Christian. But our overall topic here this evening is the creation-evolution debate. And that is often seen as a battle between science and religion, isn't it? You may have, may have seen it flavored that way. If, if, there's, if there's something involving evolution, if creation is even mentioned, creation is always put in the religion box, right? It's, it, that's about warm, fuzzy feelings, and it's what people who go to church believe, and it's what's taught to little kids uh, by little old ladies in Sunday school and that kind of thing. It's not scientific. If you want science, well, then you're, you're in the evolution camp, and that's about science and scientists, and they've got science, and they're doing science and that kind of thing. It, is that an accurate way of understanding what the debate creation-evolution is all about? Is it really science versus religion? No. But let's, let's, just, let's define our terms a little bit. What do we mean by science? What do we mean by religion? If we were to break up into small groups here and trying to come up with a, a definition of science. There isn't one single definition of science that everybody agrees on. Some people say science is what scientists do. What are you doing? I'm doing science. There, there's one definition of science. But certainly everybody would agree that science has to do with things like observations and repeatability. You make observations out in the field. You observe the living world or the physical world or, or something in space. You use, use instruments and so on. You, and you can repeat those observations. You go into a lab, for example. You do an experiment, get the same result over and over again. Science involves those kinds of things, whereas faith is beliefs about things that cannot be observed. Right? We have faith that God exists. We don't, we don't observe God directly. We have, we have, it's, it's beliefs about things that cannot be observed. So certainly there's a difference between science and faith, but is it fair to say that the creation-evolution issue is a battle between science and faith? If, if we wanted a definition of faith, where might we go for a definition of faith? The Bible. Yeah, where specifically in the Bible? Hebrews 11. The pastor's got it. That's a good thing. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things, there it is, not seen. It's about things we don't see. There's a good biblical definition of faith. There's different kinds of faith, but there's a good definition of one kind of faith. So with those sort of working definitions of science and faith, let's compare that then <clears throat> the creation-evolution issue. Start with creation. Has anyone alive today observed God creating? No, right? That's a big no. Some of you are old, but you're not that old. Is it repeatable? Do we see God repeatedly creating the universe over and over again? Well, no, obviously not. Is it a belief about the past? Yeah, belief about the past, right? So creation properly fits the definition of a religion. Not observable, not repeatable, that would be science. It's a belief about things that we haven't seen. That's not science. If people at work or at school come up to you and they know you're Christian and they say, well, you just believe creation by faith, that's just a religious idea. You could say, yes. It is no, no argument there, right? What about evolution? Has anyone observed, for example, ape-like creatures evolving into people over millions of years? No, definitely nobody's that old. Could you repeat a process like that over millions of years? No, far too long. 
Is it a belief about the past? It is, isn't it? So evolution also fits the definition of religion. It apparently happened millions of years ago when nobody was around to observe anything. It's a belief about the past. At a foundational level, the whole creation evolution issue, it's not science versus religion. It's one belief about the past versus a different belief about the past. Right? We have a belief about the past. I'm going to assume most of us are Christians here tonight. Maybe not everybody. That's okay. But Christians have a belief about the past, and other people have a different belief about the past. Right? And that's where the heat is generated. That's the debate area. My belief about the past is right. No, my belief is right. No, my belief is right. And that's what happens. Uh, it's a belief about the past. So what can we say then? Creation and evolution, they're very, very similar. It's not science versus religion. The first point we can make is they're both beliefs about history. It, we got, it's two different histories here that we're talking about. And we can, if we summarize those two histories, let's just do that quickly. Start with the evolutionary history. That starts about 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago with a big bang, cosmic evolution. You've all heard of the big bang, right? The big bang goes something like this. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. I'm, I'm serious. The physicists that, 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 that write papers on the Big Bang nowadays, Lawrence Krauss and some of these other guys, that's exactly what they're saying. There was absolutely nothing, no matter, no space, no time, and then through some quantum fluctuation, big fancy terms, you have this huge amount of energy, and that energy converts into matter, hydrogen gas, they say, maybe a bit of, bit of helium as well. And so now you've got space, and you've got hydrogen gas, and then after millions of years, some of that gas compresses to start forming solid objects like dust at first, and then pebbles, and then asteroids, and then planets, and then stars, and then millions of years go by again, and about 4.6 billion years ago or so, our own solar system and, and planet Earth begins to form from a spiraling, collapsing dust cloud, and you get a hot, molten Earth, very, very hot rocks initially, geological evolution, rocks, and then, and then after millions of years, the Earth cools down enough where you eventually get water on the earth, rivers and rain and oceans and that kind of thing. And millions of years ago, in, in a warm little pond, lifeless chemicals come together to form the first living cell. That's abiogenesis, or chemical evolution. And that first living cell goes on to develop into all the life we see on the planet today. That's biological evolution. That's what most people think of when you say evolution. It's that stage in that biblical his, in, in that history. And the final step in that history, humans from an ape-like ancestor. That's, that's one version of history. It's a very popular version of history. It's, uh, it's not just in textbooks and, and teachers teach it at school and so on. It's in popular movies. It's in entertainment. It's, it, it's all over the place. There's another version of history. God creates one, two, three, four, five, six. Then at the end of that, here's a key event in the history of the universe. God describes his initial creation as very good. Initially, the creation was very good. We, we can line these things up in a sequence. It might look something like that. Is the creation very good today? No. <laughs> we, we see remnants of that very good world, right? We might see a, a beautiful sunset, like we kind of had a nice sunset tonight, or some amazing flower, some animal that does some really cool thing or whatever. But there's also very bad things, right? There's evil people that do evil things. And that's, that's, called, that's called moral evil. And there's, there's what's called natural evil, earthquakes and tsunamis and, and diseases that kill people and cause pain and so on. What happened to God's very good world? This happened. Adam and Eve sinned, and that made Apple computers. Or, no, Ad, Adam and Eve sinned, 
I'm a PC guy. So, and, and, and that's bad, right? I know. You got an, I, I see a Mac back there. Um, Adam and Eve sinned and not brought death and suffering into the world. And that's how we can explain with, an, with a basic understanding of biblical history why there's both good and evil in the world today. That's a huge question that many people have. But, and, and the answer starts with a proper understanding of biblical history. God created a world that was very good. See, people want to blame God for evil, right? God wanted to let this happen and so on. What should we blame for evil? Sin, right? God, God created a world where bad things didn't happen, and sin destroyed that. History moves on. Uh, Genesis 6 to 9, we read about a global flood. That's a major event. Genesis 12, we read about Abraham, a key figure in the history of the universe, many promises and covenants made to Abraham that we benefit from today. And many years later, we get to the central events of the whole history of the universe, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. All of history hinges on those events there. So there's a different history than the one we just described. And if we wanted to put dates on these historical events, like we did, just did for the evolutionary one, you know, when did this one start? Just ballpark figures. Uh, just very simply, if we start with Abraham and count backwards from there, uh, everybody who studies ancient history and you know, like archaeology and, and things like that, uh, they all know that Abraham was born around 2000 B.C., 1900 to 2100, somewhere in there. No one is saying today that Abraham was born 5,000 B.C. or 20,000 B.C. Abraham was born around 2,000 B.C. Well, in our Bibles, in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, there are chronogenealogies, genealogies with the, with the time, the chronology between each of the individuals listed there. We have the exact year from the, the creation, of, <clears throat> creation of Adam to the birth of Abraham. 2009 years. So if you want to get a ballpark figure going back to creation, just count backwards 2009, it gets you to around 4,000 B.C. Without any, and again, just ballpark figures. So the world is about 6,000 years old. And if this is the first time you've heard that, you're likely thinking, no, it's not. Because <laughs> that's what I thought the first time I heard it. I thought, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows the world's millions of years old. And yet, as weird as that might sound, there is, there's there's been an amazing array of scientists and researchers and historians who've undertaken to do a study of how old is this earth? When did it all begin? When did God create? Even famous scientists. Johann Kepler was one of those. That's a name that might ring a bell, right? He was a famous scientist. He was the discoverer of the planetary laws of motion, and he believed the Bible. People today say there's no such thing. If you believe the Bible, you've got to be an atheist. and It's nonsense. Some of the greatest scientists ever were Bible-believing Christians back then and even today. Uh, but Kepler was one of those. He did a chronology, tried to figure out, okay, when did God start creating? Came up with a creation date of 3992 B.C. That's pretty close to 4,000 B.C., isn't it? Isaac Newton. There's another one. Isaac Newton is still hailed today as the greatest scientist who ever lived. Greatest scientist who ever lived. I don't know if anybody is, is ever, ever going to achieve what that boy achieved in science. Just incredible, incredible mind. He argued very strongly for creation being around 4,000 B.C., about, about 6,000 years ago from today. Uh, here, here's just one more. The Jewish calendar. Some of you might know that the Jews don't count their years like we do, like 2017, which is based on the birth of Christ for, for obvious reasons. They're, does anybody know what they celebrate at their New Year's? I mean, what do we celebrate at New Year's coming up here next month? We, we celebrate the end of a the end of a calendar year. I mean, whoop-de-doo, right? You know what the Jews celebrate? 
their New Year's is a, it's an anniversary celebration of the creation of Adam and Eve. That's cool. Isn't that, that's something worth celebrating, right? Marking off the years. Does anybody know what year it is right now in the Jewish calendar? Five, seven, seven, eight. They've got a couple hundred years to go yet to get to 6,000. But, but there's many different kind of calculations that kind of point to around 6,000 years ago, even done by scientists. So it's not scientifically ridiculous to suggest that the earth is around 6,000 years old. So, okay, there, there are those two histories. Let's move on. What else can we say about the creation evolution issue? Both involve making observations, scientific observations, and fitting them into history. And here's how the science fits in. It's not that science plays no role at all. At a foundational level, it is a battle between two different histories, but science does play a role, and this is how it fits in. You make your observations in chemistry, in physics, in, in astronomy, and in, in whatever, and you, you put them into whatever history for the universe you believe is true. Or, or if, if that's a little too difficult to wrap your head around, we can phrase this, this same kind of idea in a question. The question you want to ask yourself and teach your kids and grandkids to ask whenever there's some new scientific observation is, which history fits best? Which history, the evolutionary history over millions of years, or the biblical history provides the best framework for understanding the observations that scientists make? And some of you might know I do a TV show, a weekly half-hour talk show. On the, it's, on, it's on the Miracle Channel in Canada and many other uh, broadcasters around the world. We have a lot of fun doing that. Um, we're, we're shooting season seven. I was writing, writing shows today for season. can hardly believe we're shooting season seven. But we've done some other teaching videos as well. Uh, and these are the, we did a series based on this question. It's not a live-action thing. It's like, like an animated, like a cartoony thing. And you, you kind of have to imagine, um, you remember those corny game shows from back in the 80s? The guys with the big hair, and it's kind of like, welcome to another exciting episode of which history fits best. And there's two contestants, a creationist and evolutionist, and the evolutionist always loses and gets angry and that kind of thing. So we're, we're having fun with that. But every episode features a scientific observation. And the contestants are asked which history fits best. And so we can play a few rounds of that here this evening. Let's look at some scientific observations and work through to which history provides the best framework for understanding those. Here's the island of Madeira, about 600 kilometers off the coast of Africa there. Here's the observation. There are some beetles on this island, and the beetles fly around. It's windy a lot of the time. A lot of the beetles get blown off the island into the ocean, and they die. They drown. Now, there was a mutation, a genetic mutation, in some of these beetles long time ago, even before the time of Charles Darwin, that caused the beetles to lose the ability to produce wings. Those beetles, the mutant beetles, then became the dominant population of beetle on the island, and that's still the situation today. It's a pretty interesting scientific observation, right? Genetic mutation causes loss of wings, causes population change. Which history fits best? Well, evolutionists since the time of Darwin, including Darwin himself, have basically been saying our history fits best. This is an example of evolution happening before our eyes. You Christians, how silly you are. Can't you see the evidence for evolution? It's happening right there on Madeira. Are they right? If I was an evolutionist, I'd be embarrassed to use that as an example of evolution. 
here's one of the big differences of, of many between those two different histories. The evolutionary history, as, as I'm sure you've all heard, says we started from a single cell, and through onward-upward evolution, you end up with things like peaches, pine trees, pomegranates, and people type of a thing. And the biblical history says everything started very good and is running downhill. So what's happening to the beetles on Madeira? They're running downhill, right? They used to have the ability to fly. Now they can't produce wings anymore. Which history fits best? Biblical history. Cool. I love being a Christian. It's great. And now, now some of you might be saying, well, not, not, not so fast. Isn't that an example of natural selection and adaptation? Guess what? It is. <laughs> Creationists wrote on natural selection more than two decades before Darwin. And we write more papers on it now than we ever have. It's an important part of the creation model. But the types of changes that happen in living things to adapt them to changing climates are downhill changes. Yes, animals change. Of course they change genetically from generation to generation. But it's not evolution. It's not an evolutionary type of change. It's a downhill change. works really well if you have an intelligent designer there who put a huge amount of information in every group of living things, and now we're living in a sin-cursed world, we're seeing that deteriorate. But in the process, yes. See, God designed living things to be able to change and adapt if there's, if there's climate change without immediately going extinct. It's brilliant engineering. <laughs> it's what we would expect from a highly intelligent creator, but it's not evolution. Wrong kind of change. Let's do another one. Here's one of Jupiter's moons, Io. You can see Jupiter in the background there. Here's the observation. In, in uh, 1989, a spacecraft flew around Io, mapped the entire surface of Io for the first time, and when the data came back, astronomers were astonished. They saw 80 active volcanoes on Io. Why was that astonishing? That was astonishing because Io is supposed to be about 4.6 billion years old, about the same age as everything else in our solar system. But if Io really is 4.6 billion years old, it, basically it should be old, cold, and dead. Old, cold, and dead. But Io's not old, cold, and dead. It's extremely active geologically. 80 active volcanoes on the shrimpy little moon way out there in space. Which history fits best? It's the history that says that Io's not 4.6 billion years old. Cool. I love being a Christian. That's great. Have I said that already? Maybe. Let's do another one. Dinosaurs. Everybody wants to know about dinosaurs. How do we fit dinosaurs into the Bible? Don't they fit with evolution and stuff? Scientists have made some amazing discoveries in dinosaur bones. Over the last, last 10, 15, decade, decade and a half or so, uh, there's now been more than 40 instances, actually getting close to 50, of soft tissue found in dinosaur bones, including soft and stretchy tissue. I showed you the hadrosaur when we got started a few minutes ago. And that's not all. Blood vessels and blood cells, there are some from a T-Rex and, and from other dinosaurs they've been discovered as well. Uh, blood cells, different kinds of dinosaur proteins have been discovered, including histones. That's a type of protein normally associated with DNA and little bits of dino DNA. Not enough to have Jurassic Park all over again, so don't, don't get too excited. But uh, it's amazing some of the observations that scientists have made in dinosaur bones. Which history fits best? Now, now remember, the evolutionary history says dinosaurs all died out about 65 million years ago. Right? Obviously, these ones didn't. <laughs> Which history fits best is the history that says that dinosaurs didn't die out 65 million years ago. Cool. 
And look, we could play this game all night. We could look at scientific observation after scientific observation. The Bible's history provides by far the superior framework for understanding the observations that scientists make. If, if you believe evolution, and you, you, you know, dinosaurs died 65 million years ago, you've got a problem with science. These observations don't fit with your beliefs about history. They fit with the Bible, so it's cool. That, that's, that's why I said it's a great time to be a Christian. And again, there's so much more of this that we could do. We could go on and on. But uh, we live in an information age, don't we? I mean, if you're going to characterize this age, it's, it's an information age. We've, we've got, we've got, everybody's got their, their device, you know, and, and uh, we know what's going on on the other side of the world instantly. And it would seem like a good skill for Christians to have in an information age is discernment, right? If you can discern between good information and, like, truth and falsehoods in our information age, because kind of, it's kind of a truth war going on, isn't there? There's, and there's fake news that, that became popular a year ago and so on. If discernment would be a good skill for us to have, right? And, and, and the Bible kind of talks about this. It talks, and this, this information, if you, if you get a hold of some bad information, it could derail your whole life, right? You could be uh, taken captive by some weird philosophy and so on. The Bible kind of talks about this. It talks about two different paths, right? A, a straight and narrow path that leads to truth and life. And then it talks about a broad road that unfortunately the majority of people are on that doesn't lead to truth in life, leads somewhere else. And, and where this kind of this truth war shows up and trying to get us to go in different directions is in surveys that have been done in the church over the last decade, decade and a half or so, the percentage of young people leaving the church. You might be familiar with some of these. Um, 11 years ago now, George Barna down in the States, Barna Research Group did a survey, 61% of and these are, these are kids that grow up in Christian homes, that go through Sunday school and so on. They get into their 20-somethings, he says, and they're gone. Six, well over half, 61%. Incredible. Assemblies of God, this denomination in the U.S., 66% is what they found, the same ballpark as the Barna group there. Lifeway Research, another group in the States, 70%. That was 10 years ago now. They, they found that a percentage return, I mean, that, that's, that's good news. The largest denomination in the U.S. is the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention. They did a survey a little over a decade ago. You know what they found? 88%. Unbelievable. I was speaking a few years ago to a church in Charlottetown, PEI, out there in Anne of Green Gables land, and it was a PAOC church, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. That's a fairly large denomination here in our country. These are all American surveys. And after the service, the pastor said, well, we've recently done a survey in the PAOC. And you know what they found? 90%. What's going on here? Like, we, we could maybe dismiss these numbers if the majority of the, these kinds of surveys returned results of 3% or 8% or 15% or something like that, but that's not what's going on. Survey after survey gives these incredibly high numbers. If we can't figure out, as, as Christian parents and grandparents and church leaders, what's causing this and how to fix it, we're in big trouble. Well, I'd like to suggest that a major cause of many people leaving the church today has to do with this issue, the creation-evolution issue. I don't think it's the only cause. I don't want to overstate it, but let me, let me back up what I just said. Let's, 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 let's try to do a little thought experiment, see how this issue, what we're talking about tonight, relates to 
the mass exodus of primarily young people from the church, adults as well, but primarily young people. Let's do a little imaginary experiment. Let's imagine a three-year-old. Maybe, maybe one of your kids or grandkids, little Johnny or Susie or whatever, and they, uh, you know, they go off to Sunday school on Sunday morning, if you even have that. Not, not many churches do. But, uh, and uh, if we could look inside their lives at that point and see what's going on spiritually, we might see something like this. They love Jesus, and that's all they know. And, and every answer in Sunday school is either God or Jesus, right? And they're, and they're both the same. You know how it goes. And then they're watching these kid shows on TV, these kids' cartoon shows, and, and mom and dad, do dinosaurs fit with the Bible? I just learned on my kids' cartoon show that dinosaurs died 65 million years ago, long before humans were ever around. So how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And generally, you know what we found? As our speakers have traveled all over the world, the seven different offices and so on, church after church, all over the place, you know what we found? Generally, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa don't know how dinosaurs fit into the Bible. And, well, there was an ice age, wasn't there? It's good evidence for an ice age. Where does that fit into the Bible, mom and dad? And again, silence. And, well, maybe that's not fair. I mean, does the Bible even talk about an ice age? Maybe, maybe not. But the Bible does talk about a global flood. Okay, mom and dad, where did the water come from for the flood? And, and where did the water go after the flood went away? And again, silence. And as the weeks and months go on, the questions keep flooding in. And now little Johnny or little Susie, they're not so little anymore. Now they're in junior high and high school and college and university. And the inside of their head looks something like this. It's a mess. And the message of the cross is very difficult to see. And we lose them. So I think that's what happens that leads to these survey results. What happens is they don't get answers to these questions and others. Those are just samples. And they begin to feel after a little while that questions like these are just unanswerable that there aren't any answers to those questions, and therefore the Bible must be wrong. And, and once you've reached that, that point in your thinking, think about it. Why would you bother coming to church? You're going to come to church and sing songs that are based on a book and listen to sermons that are based on a book that you know is wrong? Why would you do that? It, it doesn't even make sense, right? I think this is what's going on in the lives of young people that leads to those survey results. Now, that's a bit depressing to talk about on such a lovely Wednesday evening. Let's move on. Let's, what would get youth to continue attending church? That's the question we need the answer to, right? You ever heard of Josh McDowell? Is that name? Okay, quite a few. Yeah, he was, uh, uh, he was an atheist when he went to college, and, and the way he tells his story is apparently there was a Christian group on campus trying to get him to come to a Bible study. And so to do these Christians a favor, he was going to disprove Christianity for them so that they could get on with their lives and stop meddling in this nonsense, or so he thought. So he took it upon himself to attempt to disprove Christianity's central event, which is the resurrection of Christ. <laughs> Big mistake, right? He discovered exactly what many of you probably already know. There's loads of historical support that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He recognized that Christianity is a well-supported religion, not a blind faith, he became a Christian, and he's been involved in youth like campus ministry on university campuses, mostly in the States, but also around the world for decades, literally for decades. He was speaking at my brother-in-law's church in Illinois a couple of years ago. He said this. I thought it was fascinating. 63%, and he's, he's talking here about students, the demographic that he's been working with for decades. 63% 
said they would attend church if the church presented truth in a way they understood it and it was significant and meaningful to their lives. I heard that and I thought, man, that kind of gives us a track to run on, doesn't it? What he's finding in, in this group of people in society, that surveys show many of them are going off the rails, there's also many of them saying, look, if you can show me that the Bible can defend itself, present truth to me, and, and make it significant and meaningful to my life. I'm hearing about all these attacks on Scripture uh, from, from, from my atheistic, humanistic professors and other students and on TV and everywhere I go. Show me that the Bible can defend itself against these attacks, and if you can do that, I'll stick around. The reason that's such good news is because it's a great time to be a Christian, and there's loads of faith-building information. We, we, we seem to have a delivery problem. Right? We're not getting this information. Many of you might have it. Yeah, you're solid in your faith. That's fine. Have you delivered it to the next generation? I think that's, that's the issue, and that leads to those, those, uh, those results. So number three, this issue may be the cause of many, not all, but many people leaving the church. I think there's a connection between this issue and those survey results. What else can we say about the creation-evolution issue? Accepting the millions of years evolutionary history dramatically impacts the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel. This is church after all, so let's talk about the gospel. And, and, uh, and actually, let's go back to this one. Remember, we kind of started with this. We kind of defined both of these as religions or faiths or, or, or worldviews, if you like. Well, you wouldn't combine another religion with Christianity, would you? You wouldn't combine, uh, you know, Islam with Christianity, Buddhism with Christianity. Then why combine evolution in millions of years? with Christianity. And, and yet, for, for some people, that's the solution. They say, look, creation versus evolution? No, no, no. Just believe in both. You just take evolution of millions of years and put it into Genesis there, no problem. Okay, let's do that. And, let, and rather than just focusing on how it's going to modify the creation account, because obviously it is if you put those ideas in there, let's focus on what it does to the gospel. By putting, by putting millions of years in, into Genesis, what does it do to the gospel? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ dies to pay for sin, right? At a foundational level, that's the basic message of Christianity. Jesus dies in the place and in the stead of sinners so that all those who place their faith and trust in him, when they die, they don't need to pay for their own sins. Their sins have already been paid for by a substitute. It's called substitutionary atonement. You've heard that before, right? Jesus dies in the place and in the stead of all of those who accept the free gift of God in Christ Jesus and turn through belief and repentance and place their faith and, and trust in him. That's the basic message of Christianity, right? A great message. Out of that, we could ask a question. Why did Jesus have to die? You ever think about that? Could, could he not have performed some ritual to absolve us all of our sins that wouldn't involve physical death? And most of you know the answer, I'm sure. The answer is no. He had to die physically. Why is that? Well, there's verses all over the Bible that make the connection between sin and death. Here's one, for example, in Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, and that's referring to physical death, right? Without physical death, there is no forgiveness of sins. So yes, Jesus had to die a physical death to pay for sins. But why? Think about the connection between sin and death. Where was that connection established? There's obviously a connection between death and the payment for sins and, and so on. Well, that, that takes us right back to Genesis, doesn't it? Here we're talking about the gospel, and zip, we immediately back to Genesis. 
Think of the very first sin that ever was. Adam and Eve disobeyed. They took the fruit they were told not to. What was the result of that? What did God say? Adam, you're going to die. I made you from dust. You're going to go back to dust. Physical death is a direct result of sin, and that was established back there in Genesis. And then in, the New, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the good news, the good news is that Jesus pays the price of physical death to pay for sin. You see that connection between sin and death? Very strong connection, and it was established back there in Genesis. Christ dies to pay for sin. Death was first linked to sin back there in Genesis. So the gospel really begins in Genesis, doesn't it? Not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if we modify Genesis, we destroy the gospel. How? And we're talking again by, by adding millions of years in evolution into Genesis, it actually destroys the gospel message, the link between sin and death. How does it do that? Without getting really technical or theological, we can answer that question by asking maybe a simpler question. Here's the simpler question. Where do the fossils fit? Where do the fossils fit? There's that biblical history. There's fossils all over the world. Where in that biblical history was the fossil record established? And if we, you'll see if we answer that question, then we'll answer the other one as well. Now, let me give you a few details about the kinds of things that, the, that, that scientists have found in the fossil record, just to help us wrap our minds around this. The fossil record is obviously a record of a bunch of dead things, dead plants and animals. It's also a record of pain, diseases, extinction, carnivorous activity, suffering, all kinds of other things. Take um, diseases, for example. There's so many diseases that scientists have found in the fossil record that they've coined an entire term, paleopathology. It's the study of deadly diseases in the fossil record. You know, among all of those diseases is cancer. And not just one instance, multiple instances of cancer. Bone cancer, very prevalent there in the fossil record. And osteoporosis, other bone diseases, all kinds of things, TB, many other things. What else? Pain. Scientists have found examples of pain in the fossil record. <clears throat> Here's an example of pain. This is Sue the T-Rex. She's the largest, most complete Tyrannosaurus rex ever found, about 85 to 90% complete. She's on display here at the Chicago Field Museum, one of the world's premier dinosaur museums where there is a family a number of years ago. I took this picture. Sue suffered from a badly healed broken leg, three broken ribs, one of which healed in two pieces, didn't heal properly. So I guess they didn't have surgeons back then to properly set the bones. So ouch, right? That's walking around on legs that aren't healing and that kind of thing. She had fused tail vertebrae, likely due to some pretty severe arthritis. Maybe some of you have fused tail vertebrae, right? You go get surgery done on that. You have back pain. You know what that's about. You take pain medication for that, right? Same kind of thing going on here. Infections caused holes in her skull. Researchers initially thought that the holes in her head were due to attacks from other, maybe other dinosaurs, other animals, that kind of thing. Turns out it was parasites boring holes in her head. Ouch! It's pain, Right? The tooth of another dinosaur was embedded in one of her ribs, so she was attacked by other dinosaurs. And it's likely also true that Sue had gout. <laughs> the gout alone would have caused excruciating pain, if you know what that ailment is all about. So Sue, this amazing animal on display here in Chicago, is a great example of pain in the fossil record. What else have scientists found in the fossil record? They found evidence of carnivorous activity, animals eating other animals. Here's a fish fossilized in the process of having its lunch, right? <laughs> So there's a few details about the kinds of things that scientists have found in the fossil record. Now let's, let's go back to biblical history. Where do the fossils fit? And just to simplify things even more, let's just zero in 
on that point in history where God calls his creation very good. Do we get any hints in Scripture as to the conditions on the earth at that time? This is before sin. Before sin enters the world, well, yeah, we get a few hints. The terminology, very good, comes from the final verse of chapter 1. There it is there. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the two verses before this one, we read that there was no death at that point. Adam and Eve, in verse 29, were commanded to eat plants. No McDonald's, no hamburgers, no bacon. I, I, I know, I struggle with that, right? Like, how, how can it be very good and not have bacon in it? Is it really, is it very good? Anyway, you can, I'm wrestling with a text. You can pray for me. And In the very next verse, the same command is given to the animals. Herbivores. You didn't have to worry in the very good world before sin of you, your kids, being ripped up by wild animals, lions, tigers, that kind of thing. It was a very good world. Those things wouldn't have happened. And, and I'm sure many of you know the verses in the Bible that talk about animal behavior in the future. You know those verses, right? What does it say? The wolf will lie down with a lamb and a lion will eat straw like an ox, like a vegetarian lion coming in the future. It's very interesting. It's kind of a reflection of what used to be in the very good world, isn't it? That's the intent there. So there's a few details about the conditions on the earth at that time. Now let's put the two of these together. Where do the fossils fit? Well, we've been told since you know, kindergarten, the fossils are millions of years old. It took millions of years to lay down the fossil records. How do we arrange these things in a sequence? Like this, right? Fossil record laid down over millions of years, and then about 6,000 years ago or so, just ballpark figures, God steps back and says, my completed creation is very good. Uh, no. How, how can that be, right? That could, could God call the things in the fossil record very good? Cancer, many other diseases. That, that, uh, I'm sure when somebody in your congregation here gets cancer, you don't throw a party, right? You pray that God would either, either heal them or ease their suffering, right? When, when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, he basically wiped out disease in Israel. It would have been a fascinating time to live in that part of the world at that time. He didn't go around like, oh, you don't have cancer. Now you got cancer. It's very good. No. And then, and then obviously, you've got a whole bunch of dead things before Adam. But hold on a second here. It was supposed to be because of Adam's sin that all these bad things happened. It's supposed to be after Adam, not before, right? But if we have this little sequence here, then what do you do, for example, with famous verses? Like, here's a Sunday school verse that you all learned when you were young. The wages, the penalty, the cost, the result of sin is death. There's a verse that's very popular that links sin and death. But if death has been going on, and terrible things going on for millions of years before Adam ever sinned, before he even existed, then there's no link between sin and death, is there? Death... Adam, Adam could have, if, if, when God said, Adam, you know, you're going to die, Adam could have looked around and said, so what? I'm, I'm not, everything's dying around me anyway. What, what kind of punishment is that? I know I'm going to die. It doesn't make any sense. That, that verse is wrong if that little sequence of events is accurate. And with that comes tumbling down the central teachings of Christianity. If there's no link, if death is not the penalty for sin and so on, then Jesus didn't die to pay for our sins. And that's how, in just a few steps, by attempting to mash these two ideas together back there in Genesis, you end up destroying the central teachings of Christianity. 
this issue, the creation-evolution issue, the origins debate, is not a minor point for Christians. If you get it wrong, you can end up doing tremendous damage to the, the entire Christian message. But that's not true, is it? What do we need to do to fix it? If we just open up our Bibles and have a look at what's there and arrange these things in a sequence biblically, we have to get the fossil somehow after God called his creation very good. And more specifically, after that point in history where Adam sins and death enters the world. Now, from a biblical perspective, that's the way it needs to be, right? If we just, just go with Scripture, initially God calls his creation very good. Then at this point, Adam sins. At this point, death and bad things enter God's very good world. And the fossil record records those death and bad things. Easy, right? However, this sequence, if we arrange them in this sequence, it's also not problem-free. What that means is, according to the Bible, fossils must be relatively young. Oh, dear. Now what do we do, right? Because we've all been told, we've been told the evolutionary story, that fossils are millions of years old. You can't even make a fossil quickly. It takes millions of years to turn a bone into stone and, and that kind of thing. That's the evolutionary scenario. The Bible says, no, they can't be. Good. Evolution says one thing. Bible says another thing. What does science say? Do we have any scientific evidence, any fossils that we know did not take millions of years to form? Yes. We've got truckloads of them. Uh, here, here's a couple of more interesting ones. It's a fossil octopus and fossil jellyfish. Those animals hardly have any hard parts, like bones. It's mostly soft and squishy material, which means they would have rotted very quickly, which means in order to get fossils of them, you would have had to bury them quickly. Not, not this millimeter per year of deposition and over eons of time, rapid burial. Otherwise, they would have rotted, right? What's interesting is that scientists find fossils like this, plants and animals all around the world, showing very little decomposition, which means there must have been rapid burial all around the world. Huh. Can you folks think of anything, global in extent, that happened after Adam's sin that might rapidly bury living things. All <laughs> The flood, right? About 1,600 years after creation, we have Noah's flood. Huge amounts of erosion and deposition. <clears throat> Ideal conditions for fossilization. Folks, that's where the fossils fit in. There's such a beautiful kind of cause and effect relationship between the flood and the fossils. You've heard of cause and effect, right? It's a logic thing, a science thing. What's the effect? What are we left with today? We're left with a worldwide fossil record showing evidence of rapidly buried plants and animals, some of them beautifully preserved all around the world. What's the cause of that? A global flood, rapidly burying plants and animals. I love being a Christian. It makes so much sense, right? We, we, it's perfect. We, we have a mechanism to produce the fossil record on a global scale, rapid burial. That's what scientists find. And, and it's at the right time in history. It's after sin and death enter the world, so we're not putting death in front of sin, so we don't have a theological nightmare. It all works. And yet, as I said just a couple minutes ago, in order to have this, which works very, very well, we've basically got to get the idea out of our minds that the fossil record is millions of years old. And that's where a lot of people slam on the brakes. <laughs> they, they say, no. We, but, yeah, I believe creation, but God did it millions of years ago. Millions of, we, we know that the world is millions of years old. You know, and that's a hot issue in the church today, the age of the earth debate. 
And if this is something that you struggle with, the, the, the idea that, you know, how could God possibly create recently? How could the world be only about 6,000 years old or so? You know what? The key to understanding this the very controversial issue is the flood. The key to understanding the age of the earth is the flood because a global flood would dramatically accelerate things like erosion and deposition and mountain building and continental drift, things that at today's rates, at the rates we see today, probably would take millions of years to produce the fossil record and to produce the geologic features that we see. But a flood would have, would have done that very quickly. A flood would have aged the earth, if, if you know what I mean. It didn't actually make it older. It just accelerated the aging processes. If you struggle with this idea of, you know, how could the world be young, think very carefully about, the, about what a global flood could accomplish in a very short time period. But nevertheless, people look at things like this. This is, the, this is Grand Canyon here, the Colorado River, and they say, well, how could a flood, you're telling me a flood did that? Didn't the river carve the canyon? That's, that's what we're told. The Colorado River, over about a million years or so, carved the Grand Canyon. And people say, well, how, how could a flood do that? I don't get it. Help. Okay, let's... let's Compare this with maybe some other canyons that, 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 and, and how the flood might, how we might understand this in a flood context. Here's another canyon, not as big as Grand Canyon, obviously. It's about 140th the size of Grand Canyon, but it's, it's about, what, about 600 feet across and 150 feet deep. And there is a little stream running down the middle. I don't know if you can see it from the back there. There's a little stream there. And if we went there today to this canyon, we might suppose that the river carved the canyon. That's, that's a very reasonable hypothesis. There's nothing wrong with that. Rivers do erode sediment out of the canyons that they flow through, and given hundreds or, or maybe into the thousands of years, that stream may have carved that canyon. It's reasonable to think along those lines, but in this case, it's wrong. And, and actually, it's not even, it's not even close. <laughs> the river had nothing to do with the formation of the canyon. That canyon didn't take 1,000 years to form didn't take 100 years, didn't take 10 years, didn't even take one year. This canyon was formed in a day. That's a one-day canyon, 600 feet across, 150 feet deep. This is a picture from the base of Mount St. Helens in southern Washington state. Mount St. Helens is a volcano. What happened was the volcano erupted. There was ice and snow up on top of the mountain. That melted very quickly, and that produced a mud flow that came through this area twice highway speed, carving out that canyon. Or maybe highway speed, depending on how fast you folks drive around here. But in any case, it was, it, it, and then the river formed. That's another interesting thing. The river didn't even exist before the canyon was there. The reason the river's there in the, in the base of the canyon today is obviously when it rains, the rainwater collects in the canyon and it forms a stream. But the river had nothing to do with its formation. So it's not the river caused the canyon, it's, it's the canyon caused the river. It's the opposite of what we normally think. And yet, you wouldn't necessarily conclude that if you go and look at the canyon today. You might, you might conclude that the river caused the canyon. And again, that's a reasonable argument. Evolutionists often have reasonable-sounding arguments. Just because an argument sounds reasonable doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. It's reasonable to say that the river carved the canyon, but it didn't, and it's not even close. If we look at the sidewalls of this canyon, see that layer between the yellow dotted lines here? That was laid down in about three hours on June 12, 1980, about 15 feet thick or so. And, and what blue geologists mind, again, as a result of an eruption of the volcano, what blue geologists mind is when they had a close-up view of that layer. Here's a close-up view. Look at that fine layering. 
Geologists are used to thinking of those fine layers as maybe one or two of them, like a pair of layers being laid down a year, two layers a year. And yet here's dozens of layers within just a few inches in a sequence that was deposited in three hours. Incredible, some of the things that happened around Mount St. Helens. And Mount St. Helens it was only a, a, a few mud flows from the top of a mountain. It did some pretty interesting things. But if a few little mud flows can do interesting things like this, what could a global flood do on a much bigger scale? Right? If you go back to Grand Canyon, you've got to ask yourself the question, did that river carve that canyon over about a million years? Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> it's, it's reasonable to think along those lines, and that's, that's often the story that's given. On the other hand, it may be completely wrong. <laughs> There's even a DVD at the back there. Um, actually, I, I, went, uh, I went whitewater rafting for five days down the, uh, down the Colorado River through Grand Canyon a number of years ago in the 90s. And uh, incredible, some of the biggest whitewater in the world, huge standing waves there. We were in these massive rafts, and uh, they call that extreme sports. Any of you ever done you do extreme sports? I've done some other extreme sports. I've jumped out of a perfectly good airplane eight times and had almost 300 flights on my hang glider. 299 flights. I never had that 300th flight, but um, I, I don't do that stuff anymore, by the way. I'm, I'm a good little boy now. I, I have a family and that kind of thing. But I was rafting down the river with creation geologists and paleontologists, PhD scientists, and we were studying the evidence in the canyon for rapid deposition of all those layers that you see there and rapid erosion of the canyon in, in a, in a flood, post-flood type scenario. And guess what? The more we study Grand Canyon, the more we're coming away with the notion that that thing could never have formed via the slow and gradual millions of years processes. There's too much evidence there for catastrophic processes, exactly the kinds of things that we'd expect going on in a global flood. And like I said, there's a DVD at the back there called Rafting in the Grand Canyon, featuring a lot of the pictures I took, uh, the rocks and fossils we looked at, and, uh, and some rafting pictures as well. A lot of fun, actually. Biblical history is supported by natural selection. We started off looking at the island of Madeira. It's a great example of natural selection, but it doesn't fit with evolution. The wrong kind of change. Not all change is evolution. Young planets. We looked at Io as an example. Well, Io's a moon, but it's out there in space saying, I'm not 4.6 billion years old. I don't fit with that history. The observations from the spacecraft that went to Io, they fit with biblical history. They support biblical history. We looked at fresh, unfossilized dinosaur bones containing soft tissue. Blows my mind what scientists are finding in dinosaur bones nowadays. Soft tissue. And notice, unfossilized. Scientists are finding dinosaur bones. Okay? They're not even fossilized. Blows my mind. And then on top of that, they break them open and there's soft tissue inside once it's rehydrated and so on. And, and blood vessels and all kinds of things screams against the evolutionary notion that they all died 65 million years ago. No, they didn't. Fossils around the world showing little decomposition. We looked at what the, the, the jellyfish and the octopus, right? A, a jellyfish laying around on a beach. How long do you think that thing could survive? A week, maybe? Rapid burial. Beautifully supports biblical history. Very little decomposition. And scientists see that all, all around the world. Rapid rock layers and rapid canyon cutting. We saw that at Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens really gives us kind of a, 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 a little template, an example of what may have been going on on a much, much bigger scale in a global flood. 
Incredible. And the, the more we look at canyons, the more they fit with really a catastrophic type of a notion <clears throat> rather than a slow and gradual notion, and many more. We can kind of talk about this for millions of years type of thing, but uh, we'll, we'll have a break here in a few minutes. It, it's a great time to be a Christian. There's, there's a massive amount of support for our faith. I've, I've, I've zipped through a, a few examples here in the last hour, so an hour has gone by already. Um, if, if you're a little bit interested in some of this and, and want more of this kind of information, I'm going to make some recommendations. You saw the, the, the books and DVDs that I brought, and it's, sometimes it's overwhelming. Okay, what do we get? I'll make some recommendations. For those of you who, who, who feel you want more of this, my number one recommendation would be Creation Magazine. That's our flagship publication. Next month here in December, it's going to be our 40th, uh, 40th issue, a 40th, 40th uh, uh, year. It's a 40th volume, volume 40, issue one, coming out next month in December. 40, 40 years, that's, where I'm, that's what I'm getting at. It's been going for 40 years, goes out to over 100 countries all around the world, and every article is just faith-building information. It's this, the kind of stuff that we've been talking about here in the last hour, evidence that supports what Scripture says. A wonderful faith-building magazine has had a huge impact on thousands of lives all around the world. It's, now, it, it is a family magazine, and, and by family, I don't mean that it's for kids. By family, I mean you don't need a PhD to read the articles. That's what I mean by family, okay? There is a kids section. Your older kids can read it to your younger kids and that kind of thing. And we have another magazine that we produce you almost do need a PhD for, but th this is not it. This is short articles, color pictures, very well laid out and so on, and it's quarterly, four a year, not 12. We're all busy, right? You get, you get three months between each one to absorb the information, pass it around to your family, your friends, uh, share it. If, if you go to, when you're finished with it, you, you go to get your car fixed, leave it in the waiting room. Go to get your teeth worked on, leave it in the waiting room. Get it out into society. It, it, people have been saved by reading the magazine. It's just incredible. So I kind of picture the magazine. Let's go back to this one. Remember this one? And maybe some of you can relate to this. Or maybe some of you can see this going on maybe in your kids or grandkids. Here's how I picture the magazine working. If you, you, you sign up for, the first, for, sign up for the, the subscription, along comes the first issue, and, it, oh, there's an answer to that question. Wow, never thought there would be. And the next one comes along, and, oh, there's an answer to that one, too. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And after a little while, the inside of your head, <clears throat> inside of your head starts looking more like this again. And, and you say to yourself, hey, I love Jesus. <laughs> I love his word. I, I know that his word is truth. I want to I learn those truths and apply them to my life. I want to live a spirit-filled life. That's, that's where we all want to be, Right? If you're struggling in your faith, the, the magazine, I think it's our number one equipping tool. There's, there's other good stuff back there, but I just think the magazine is, is the number one thing. If, you, if that sounds interesting, if you're interested in that, or you want to sign up, a subscription is $7.50, and it's billed every three months, not every month, every three months, to either a credit card or your bank account. It's up to you. You, you pick. doesn't really matter. And what you get is you'll get an hard, a hard copy of the magazine, an actual physical copy of the magazine, plus a digital copy to your email address that you can share on up to five devices, your smartphone, your laptop, your desktop, that kind of thing. And if you sign up tonight, I'll give you your first issue for free. You can start reading tomorrow, start reading later tonight if we get out of here before midnight or whatever. <laughs> and that's not all. I'll also give you a free DVD. So can you sign up at creation.com? Of course you can, but you don't get the free stuff. 
So sign up tonight, you get the free stuff. So it's up to you, whatever. You want to think about it for a few days, that's fine. The sign-up sheets look like this, and if we could start those around as I wrap up here, that would be great. Uh, what you want to do is just tear off the lowest one, and they're double-sided. Fill in the front with your address information, the back with your payment information, and just, just hand them in at the table back there. That's where you get your free stuff. Just fill it in, hand it in, and you're done, and uh, that's it. So we can start those around. If, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with this magazine, let me give you a sample of the kind of information we put into it. Here's a cover from a few years ago. See those babies down there at the bottom? They're twins. <laughs> one of the, one, one's black, one's white. They're twins. One of the questions that people have, and this is a good question, is, okay, if the Bible says that all people go back through the Tower of Babel back to Noah, and originally, of course, we come from Adam and Eve, then how do Christians explain the difference in skin shade? That's a good question, right? you got to know there's an answer when... Here's what the article looked like. Here's a middle brown mom and dad. They had a black baby and a white baby in the same generation. Adam and Eve were probably middle brown. Noah and the population at Babel was probably middle brown. And as you can see from a middle brown couple, you can get the entire variation in skin shade. Most of the world's still middle brown today. Uh, that's the kind of information that we put in the magazine. It's kind of, kind of cool, isn't it? It's that, that kind of information. Here's the twins when they were, I think they were eight when that was taken. That was a few, four or five years ago. And they're, and they're twins. It's just amazing. And, and, and somebody, somebody asked, well, are they identical twins? Well, no. That, that's genetics, right? That's different. But that would be my number one recommendation. Get that magazine into your home. It's a fantastic tool. Uh, if, if, if you're a book person, if you'd, I'd, I'd still recommend the magazine, but if you're a book person, you like to read, get this one, the Creation Answers book. Why this one? It's because in one book, you get answers to more than 60 of the most asked questions from Genesis and the creation evolution issue. It's our most popular book for that reason. It covers a huge range of topics. And that's a, that's a great book to get. Another, another type of answers book is Christianity for Skeptics. Now, this is not, a, this is not a, a creation book. It deals more with other attacks, let's say philosophical attacks on Scripture, and it refutes those. And we've put both of those together in a pack. We call it the faith-building pack. You can get them both separately if you want, but uh, you get the faith-building pack and save a little bit there. Is, is your faith in need of a bit of a boost? You get the faith-building pack. That's why we put it together. It's a great little pack. For those of you who want to study, study Genesis more in depth, I'd recommend this one, the Genesis account. This is a commentary. This covers the first 11 chapters of Genesis, verse by verse. And the thing is, it's nearly 800 pages. You might be thinking, how can it be 800 pages if it only covers 11 chapters of the Bible? <laughs> the reason it's, it's that thick is because it does what commentaries do. It draws the meaning from the text. Here's what the words, the original Hebrew actually means. And we've put in the science that supports what the text says. So in one volume, you get it all. You get both the theology and the science side by side. I call this the Rolls-Royce of creation books. It does it all. You get, the, again, both of them side by side. Genesis account. If you're looking for science, if you want a science book that refutes evolution, then get this one, Evolution's Achilles' Heels. This is, this, what we did with this project, finished a couple years ago, is we looked at what evolutionists, areas that they feel are their strengths, the fossil record, genetics, natural selection, big bang, radioisotope dating, and so on. And we showed that in every one of those areas, there's massive scientific problems. 
It's our Evolution Master Blaster. So uh, that, or, or you can get the DVD. The DVD summarizes the content in the book. The book uh, is authored by nine PhD scientists. The DVD, we, we interview 15 PhD scientists. And so that makes a great witnessing tool. If you're going to work or school with, with an atheist that you're trying to share Christ with and you're just running up against brick walls all the time, try, try some of these tools here. Try, try a DVD. Here, watch this DVD. Or come over to my place. And, no, we're not going to watch the game. We're going to watch this, these scientists here talk about evolution. And uh, whatever. Not, no, not on game night. That might not go over well. But on, on the other end of the spectrum, I've got some kids' books. There's a pack back there of five kids' books, and there's a few of them individually. Uh, there's, there's, I mean, there's lots more online. I can't bring everything with me, but um, it's, it, Christmas is coming up. Grandparents, another pair of socks, maybe not. But parents and grandparents, teach your kids truth from the very youngest ages. And hopefully when they get one day out from underneath mom and dad and, and make decisions on their own, they're not going to abandon Christianity. Uh, there's, there's other stuff back there, DVD packs. And then there's this thing. This is the, the Creation Library Starter Kit. This is if you're really serious or, or slightly nuts. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very large pack of both books and DVDs. And what we've done, and, and pretty much everything I mentioned is in that pack. It has the Creation Answers book. It has Christianity for Skeptics, the Genesis account, that commentary, the Rolls-Royce of Creation books. It's got Evolution's Achilles Heels. Both the book and the DVD are in there. And a bunch of other things, a, a kid's book on dinosaurs that even adults can understand. It's great stuff. And what we've done with this pack is we've slapped a massive discount on it. It's over $330 worth of resources for just under $200. But if you can't afford any of this, I, I, I feel like I should apologize. It does cost money for us to produce this stuff and pay the writers and so on. But you don't have to spend a penny this evening to get equipped. And I'm serious. You don't need to open your wallet at all. Get the free stuff. Go to that crazy long website name that we all said together when we started. There was over 11,000 articles for you to read. Costs you nothing. And you can watch my TV show. You don't need, the Miracle Channel is a little bit difficult to get here in Ontario, but you can watch it online. You don't need satellite. You don't need cable TV. Watch it online. It's on YouTube. We, we, it's broadcast around the world. And then after that, we put it on, online. It's free. Uh, you can, or if you got Roku, we can do that as well. There's over 140 episodes online. Pick a topic. Ice Age, dinosaurs, whatever. Hit play and go make a bowl of popcorn. Sit there and listen to us talk about this stuff, right? You don't even need to read. See, it's easy. Amazing. Anyways, let's have a break. Let me, let me close in prayer, and we'll have a break for about 10 or 15 minutes or so, and, uh, and then we'll come back for question time. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that today there are answers for some of these tough questions that many people struggle with that, that involve Genesis and the creation evolution issue. And I just pray that some of the folks here would, would, would make use of some of these resources, the website or, or like the free tools or, or the resources at the back, whatever it might be, that they would get answers and grow in their faith to the point where they know they can trust all of your word from cover to cover. And, and Lord, more than that, I pray that once equipped, the folks here would share this information with people who don't believe that your word is true. And as a result of those efforts, I pray that many would come to know your son, Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Any announcements? For all the Dutch people who are going for the free stuff, that's uh, all good. But for, uh, for those who are buying, they do accept uh, check, um, Visa, and uh, uh, MasterCard, I believe, as well, and then debit as well. So... Uh, we're going to have some chance for the snacks. If you have children downstairs, you may want to check in on them. Just make sure it's all good. Uh, and we'll set the timer. What are we now?
quarter after. So we'll see you in here at about 25, uh, 25 after, and we'll be here for a question and answer session. For those who aren't staying for that, thank you for coming. Glad you're here, and maybe we could just give him another round of applause because I was mind blown. All righty.